1: Hey, welcome to the show. I am very happy to have my friend Gary Welsh joining me. Gary, nice to have you aboard. Hello, Brian. Nice to be with you. And I've been trying to think, Okay, how do I introduce Gary? Because I want to do justice to all of the work that you do. Uh, You know, by profession, you are a professional marketer. You're a consultant. uh, You're a guy who knows how to get messages out. But you and I have been working together for some time on a couple of different projects. And, and I'm just I'm not sure what what title to give you. I, I was toying with Grand Bah, but I, I wasn't sure if you would accept it. What, how, how would you describe what you are doing and, and the, the role that you are playing as you and I collaborate to make some things happen here?
2: I, I would classify my role as your partner in telling the truth. I like that. that that's how I see myself is is where I'm at. Well, and you you
1: have been working very closely with attorney Garrett Smith from Integra Law, who is one of the, the people behind this uh, class action lawsuit to be filed in federal court on behalf of small business owners who find themselves on the brink of ruin, thanks to actions by various government officials telling them you're not essential.
2: Yeah, and and this is all part. I mean, you're a part of this. Garrett is a part of it. And there's lots of others. And it's starting to grow. More and more people are starting to come together because they're seeing what is going on. And it really, really, and just to stress this point, really stresses them that our government is taking the kind of actions that they're taking. And we're all saying the same thing. We never in our lives envisioned the actions that we have seen our government taken, we thought this might be like 30 years from now and it's happening today. And there's lots of people now starting to come together and stand up and be brave. I, I, I always like to talk about the courage of those who stand up in the very beginning and say, this is not right.
1: Yeah. it I think you've been paying attention for a long time. I've been paying attention for quite some time and we've seen this incremental shift Towards greater and greater government authority, taking control of our lives and diminishing our individual liberties, and our our free markets, our our, individu- our uh, ability to be autonomous. But I don't think any of us could have conceived how far we would jump. I mean, it's it's a it's a light, it's 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 like this this giant leap of a light year towards uh, towards out and out collectivist socialist control of every single aspect of our lives and businesses and, and livelihoods and social activities and medicine. Uh, there's, there's no place this doesn't reach all in response
2: to a virus. And this is all part of a concept that I've been preaching for several years now in that we don't have the government and the society that our founding fathers established and that we think we have. You know, we we look at ourselves as a constitutional republic. We're not even remotely that. We call ourselves capitalists. We are not even remotely that. We are a socialist society with a socialist government. And they have been getting more and more bold in their in their in their conversations. You know, they're coming out and actually advocating for a socialist government. They've been very bold and and we're going to do this and you can't stop us, but you're absolutely right. The events of this year have just been this this big leap that they made and they actually just came out and and started doing things that even went beyond what those of us who are opposing this have even expected that they would do.
1: Okay, now it's it's one thing for us to look at this and to see the reality for what it is in the light of day. But what we're not doing here, and I don't want anybody to misunderstand, is we're not throwing our hands in the air and saying, see, it's all spoiled. It's all ruined. Um, there's, we have, I, I, and I'm going to let you speak to this on, on your own terms, we wouldn't be speaking up if we didn't believe it could be fixed.
2: I absolutely believe that. One of the things that I always like pointing to is that famous picture in Tenement Square of the guy that stands in front of the tank. This was a, an individual that was raised in communist China. He only heard communist China propaganda. He only heard the government way of doing things. He only knew their way of doing things His schooling and everything said that you are not in an individual. You are part of the collective and you do not resist. You do not oppose us. We are right. And we are right 100% of the time. And yet somewhere within that soul, a fire was lit that said, I'm going to stand up. I'm, I'm not going to accept that. And I always point to that. I think within us is that, that flame that burns and cries for liberty and cries for freedom, and that that will always prevail.
1: I, I will take it even one step further, and that is I believe in my heart that to people like you and me and those who are nodding their heads appreciatively at what they're hearing right now, we were born for this time. And I believe the founders were born for their time and they they were up to the task because of the kind of individuals they were. And I, I believe that, that God sends us into life uh, with a purpose. Every single purpose from the, through every single person from the, the highest to the to lowliest person has some way in which they can change the world. And because of what you're describing, that that love of liberty, that love of of being able to freely chart our own destiny. We were sent for a time when that uh, when those ideals would need to be protected. And so I'm I'm not trying to make it sound like we walk on water, but we are doing our level best to to impact things positively and to help people understand what's at stake here. And let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the the efforts that uh, that you and I have been working on. Uh, Tell me about the book that, that we're about to release.
2: So um, Brian and I and and, uh, another individual, um, Baron Stevens, I'm going to give him credit uh, because he's helping us with this, have been working on a book that we want to put out. It's a booklet. It's a small, um, I think it's going to be about 20 pages uh, long, nothing extensive. But what it talks about is it address what I am classifying as we have been scared silly. And, and the word silly really is, is what we want to talk about because as a country, when we get really scared, we tend to do things that defy logic, that defy reason, and we act out of the fear and, and, and basically like that fear takes over and it and overcomes our logical mind and things that we would not tolerate and would not do you know, prior to that fear now becomes acceptable. And so the book is about addressing that, about talking about COVID-19 and how it is a manifestation of this socialist government. If you want proof that we have a socialist government, that this is, you can't call it a constitutional republic, you cannot call it a democracy, you cannot call it even a republic. It is a socialist government controlled by elitists who believe and absolutely are going to promote their agenda over ours. I know better than you. I know what's good for you. You are stupid. You are, you're, you're, you know, that whole philosophy of tyrants everywhere. The, the, the motto of every tyrant is I know better than you. Therefore I have the right by God, whoever to rule over you. Um, that, that addresses that. This is just that man COVID-19 is nothing more than a manifestation of our socialist government saying, hey, we're in charge.
1: Well, we're going to talk about we're we're coming up on our break here in about 90 seconds. But when we come back, I want to talk about acceptable deaths, because, I mean, there's a lot of concern right now. And frankly, uh, people who go out without masks are accused of you're trying to cause death or you don't even care if people die. So obviously, behind all of these extraordinary measures, to prevent the spread of coronavirus, to prevent people from getting ill, is uh, I, I guess it's it's all about we're trying to save lives, and, and maybe some lives are being saved by some of these measures. I think you know that that can be debatable. But what about the other victims, and what about the other causes of death that uh, that maybe aren't being focused on?
2: Yeah, let's bring to light the fear. Let's address the fear so that people are going to start using their reason again and their logic and, and, you know, using that reasonable mind that God gave all of us.
1: Do you think the fear was justified at, at first or at least more understandable at first?
2: I think very shortly afterwards, within two weeks, the truth was being shown to us. The data was being shown and and they just simply ignored it. Okay. Yeah. I,
1: I was scared too. Because, you know, as everything was shutting down and, oh, no, there's no toilet paper and, you know, all all of the little cascading consequences, that was a scary thing. But here we are four months later and it's not like uh, we're all living in a vacuum and there's just no data that we can look at and we can't uh, extrapolate anything that's happened, you know, and tell, you know, what has worked and what hasn't. No, we have a lot of data. And yet those who think they know best are still maintaining that uh, they want to take charge and uh, and tell us what needs to be done once again and i don't know about you gary but i'm i'm just not having it <laughs> don't don't nope. mean to be stubborn but i'm not having it all right we got to take a quick break gary welch is my guest this is the brian hyde show i would encourage you go to our show notes at the we will pay a couple of bills and we'll be back just the other side of these messages the brian hyde show Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm glad that you have found this place where people who have accepted the truth that they are not sheep can gather and discuss and think. Gary Welch is my guest. Uh, we're talking about uh, of course the COVID-19 response and Gary uh, the first chapter of this uh, this book that uh, you and I and Barron have have worked on is it's about acceptable deaths, but it's also about uh, about fear and about those in authority taking that fear and using it in ways that, that were to their advantage. And
2: I'm going to ask you if maybe you could, could expand on that a bit. Well, the biggest thing that got me was they are uh, silencing dissent by the words, you're killing grandma. You know, you're, you're, if you, you're, you're spreading these lies and you're spreading these, these half-truths and uh, your facts don't align with our facts, and because of that, you're going to get people killed. And, and Governor Como saying, well, and, and others, they, I've, I've heard law, officials, law enforcement officials say this about drones, you know, going over and, and monitoring people, I'm saying, well, if it just saves one life, it's all worth it. And then, you know, on the surface, that sounds like it's really good, but that's not the reality of the life we live in this world.
1: Talk to me about the data. You had mentioned before we went to break that. Um... Even within a couple of weeks, there was a pattern that was emerging among those who were watching the coronavirus, watching who was most severely affected. What uh, what could we draw from
2: what we learned even within the first couple of weeks? So when it first came out, you know, we didn't know a lot about it. And there were several projections being made these the so-called experts that were out there um, was giving a variety of projections all the way from the very worst that was saying millions are going to die from this to those who were going to say, you know what? It's just another flu bug guys. Don't worry about it. It's just going to be another flu bug and anything, everything in between. But some of the things that came out almost immediately was who was vulnerable. We knew almost right away within several weeks after the disease had created an an epidemic portion and we had the data Our, Our government officials, when they were looking at this data, did know for a fact that if you were young and healthy, the odds of you dying from this was really extraordinarily rare. Even if you're not young, if you were even older, you could be in your 60s, but as long as you did not have any other conditions going with it, the odds of you dying from this disease was going to be very, very low. And so that gets me, you know, questioning what was the concern? What is this? You know, we have to save everybody. Where was it coming from?
1: Well, and let's let's talk, too, about uh, the the idea that these measures that we've seen implemented and and they seem to be ramping up. In fact, they seem more strict than they were the first time around. We're hearing rumors that uh, this is the kind of thing we can expect for the next four or five years
2: Tell me where that leads. So that that leads to using, I, I really do believe that they're just simply using fear. And and of course the biggest fear is the fear of death. You know, we just that is what we really are going to react strongly to, as a method for control. Because this really does not have to do with measures to protect our society or protect the people in whole. When you look at the numbers. Of, of the and and I would say the real numbers versus what they are projecting the numbers that they like to use, it just doesn't rise to the level that they could imprison you, and then that's what these you know self quarantine self isolation things were that was nothing more than your government arresting you and imprisoning you without any due process or without any cause at all other than they said that they wanted to. And we have to look at this from, I, th- I think it res- it involves a discussion is, what is an acceptable number of deaths? Because even at the time when the numbers got more realistic and they started dropping it from the millions, they were saying, look, if we don't do this, hundreds of thousands are going to die. And as of right now, in in the United States, hundreds of thousands have died from this. So, they're using those numbers, but projecting them as that's why we're doing this. And we have to look at this and say, OK. Is it worth it? Is, does this justify it?
1: What happens if we just try to ignore it, if we refuse to stand or we just feel like, oh, I don't want to draw attention to myself or I don't want to be one to make a fuss? Why? Why is it in our why? Why is it in our um, interest? to stand up now, as opposed to just waiting for this to blow over?
2: Because our founding fathers, you know, I, I think a lot of times we put a lot more credit to them than what they really deserve. But these, these men were very smart, intelligent, wise men and they understood the nature of power. I always call the the first um, um, convention, the, the constitutional convention, the first meeting of, of the Society of Human Behaviorists, <laughs> because really that's what they were. They understood human behavior, both as an individual and in total, just in, in, in societies. And what they understood about government and about power was that those individuals that are attracted to that seek power, and they seek to dominate. And and they do take this enlightened lead approach that I know better than you, I'm smarter than you, I was raised better than you, I had a better education, my daddy was rich, so that makes me better than you. Therefore, I have the right and the authority to tell you what to do. And they recognize this. And they created our government to basically stop that. That was what their intention was, because I always view the point that when Thomas Jefferson said that all men were created equal, he was not talking about equality or account- outcomes or anything like that. He was talking about there is no one, there is not one single individual that has the, the wisdom and the ability and the intelligence and the benevolence to rule over you. He does not exist on this earth as as a human being. That person does not exist. Therefore, we should never allow them to do that. And this is what this is. This is a way of them saying we are establishing absolute control. If we can control you to the point that we say you are going to stay at home in arrest and in prison in your home, that tells me that they have complete control.
1: Okay, so let's let's talk solutions. And I I realize there's no quick easy fix here. There are a lot of people out there who are concerned, there are a lot of people who are trying in their own way to do something and you had mentioned when we were talking during the break, if only we could get everybody, you know, to coordinate their efforts, uh we could really do some remarkable stuff. But what would we like to see happen in terms of of people making that stand, taking those first tentative steps? What needs to
2: happen? I think that um that sorry I think that we need to get individuals to start, you know, if you're not the type to actually stand up, if let's say you're not the podcaster, you're not the poster, you're not the social media person, you need to share, share people like yourself who are going, who are willing to stand up and voice it. But more importantly, we got to get the truth out there. The numbers the numbers are saying that this thing is not nearly as deadly as they're promoting it to be. It does not rise to the level of a crisis.
1: And yet everything is being turned on its head as if, oh, no, this, is, this makes the Black Death look like, you know, a common cold. Um, I don't know. You mentioned fear before. I, I agree. There's way too much fear going around in the uh, in the 30 seconds or so we have left. Any suggestions on how a person might bring that fear under control?
2: Yes, we get the truth out. The truth says the the data is actually overwhelming. And it says this thing is not as dangerous as they're saying it is. All right. Resources. Let's see. I want to
1: send them um, to We Are Essential. That is on the Integra Law website. Tell us where to find that.
2: That's um, IntegraLaw.net, and then you just click on the We Are Essential tab, and it talks about what's going on, one effort, one, just one particular effort, and that's the lawsuit against the state of Utah. If successful, um, we're going to promote a national.
1: Okay, this is the first of many conversations Gary and I will be having. If you feel like you should do something, you probably should.
2: This
0: is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, phone lines are open, 801-331-8113. If you got that itch... Go ahead and scratch it. 801 I got a couple of different uh, articles I wanted to touch on here. One of them I, I briefly alluded to in my conversation with Gary in the first half of the hour. And one of these is from Roger W. Koops. Month four of the panic. Where is the evidence? And he starts with a quote from Dr. Carl Sagan. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Now that seems trite. You know, think this thing through. Dr. Carl Sagan was one of the premier scientists when it came to trying to bridge the gap of hard science with general public understanding. In the process, his personal enthusiasm for the wonder of science became evident to all. He also understood that science could be hijacked and that the highest standards of evidence were required when fantastic claims were being made. Now, Roger Koops says that in just a few short months, the world's gone from a normal functioning society to one of extreme panic and chaos. He says maybe even the twilight zone couldn't have conceived of this to such a degree. We've seen the very foundations of human existence cracked, some might say disintegrated. There's been induced panic and hysteria, cultural and social disintegration, censorship, political hijacking, economic collapse, and hardship. Imposition of laws in free societies incurred beyond the usual process of lawmaking and resembling totalitarian regimes. In short, human existence has been turned upside down. Fortunately, though, he says there have been some zones of sanity around the world, but far too few. The panic that has been induced has been directed toward trying to convince the public that SARS-CoV-2, which I will refer to simply as coronavirus, is an apocalyptic virus that will doom anyone who gets it. And that effort continues to this day. Avoiding the virus or run and hide has been the major theme of the inducement. Therefore, the message is that all of these extreme measures are necessary to save people from the horrors of disease. Now, he says this is a truly extraordinary claim. So where is the extraordinary evidence? Well, he lays out his case by first going back in time before the panic, because it seems that the collective memory of society has been lost. He says, uh, first of all, you've got to look at the, the pan- pandemic start and spread. Recently, the European CDC published a lengthy report updating the science and what we know about this virus and the disease. They also reported that serology studies have indicated that this pandemic may have started as early as the beginning of October 2019. This is significant beyond words. So while it's been assumed that this started in Wuhan, China, it's still not clear if that was the actual starting point or the catalyst for the pandemic. Wuhan is a major metropolitan city of China. It's the Center for Advanced Technology, Commerce, Arts, Science and Culture. It has a population of about 17 million people. Last fall, Wuhan was the site for many international events in the aforementioned areas. For instance, Wuhan was the site for the World Military Games. It's an Olympic of sorts for military personnel that ran for about 10 days from October 18th through the 27th, with over 9,000 competitors from 80 countries. What better opportunity for the spread of a virus? In addition, Asia hosted many international events last fall, including the the Rugby World Cup and the Women's Handball Championship, both Japan, the uh, World Track and Field Championships in Dubai, and even the PGA held a tournament in China. Include the numerous technology, university, cultural, and other events and conferences that were conducted in Wuhan, you have a huge opportunity to export the virus to the world. But you don't even need all of that. Given the great number of flights from Asia to all parts of the world that occur, or did occur, at least on a daily basis, you have people from all parts of the world as potential carriers of the virus. By the time medical researchers in China started to take notice, it was into December. They originally reported a cluster of pneumonia cases of unknown origin and eventually traced it to a coronavirus. By this time, the pandemic was likely well underway in many countries, but was going unnoticed. Why? Because the symptoms mimic the other URI, or upper respiratory infections, mainly influenza and colds, but also bacterial infections like bronchitis or sinusitis. And they were being treated as such. Remember, this was still in the before panic or BP period. By the time we're ending 2019 and entering 2020, people around the world are experiencing the disease. Even the U.S. CDC recently said that this virus was already in the U.S. by early 2020 and quite probably before. People were still going to concerts and sporting events. Kids were going to school. People socialized with other people without fear. And yes, people were getting sick. Now, there were probably some serious cases, just like influenza and colds. And yes, some people were dying from the disease. Remember, at that time, there was still no test for this virus. People who were sick and seeking medical help were being diagnosed with symptoms and were quite likely being diagnosed for any upper respiratory infection like influenza, colds, bronchitis, or sinusitis. So where was the extraordinary evidence? If this truly was an apocalyptic disease, we certainly would have seen it by that time. But Coop says by mid-January, the first testing was available. And it was limited, so it wasn't applied to the general population. In the U.S., for instance, it focused on travelers from China. And very quickly, the first confirmed case was found near Seattle in a person who traveled to China for business and returned. Now, this was not the first actual case in the U.S. This was only the first confirmed case... By testing. In fact, shortly after this in early February, some nursing homes were starting to report problems. How could that be possible? Even so, panic had not erupted. Life was continuing as normal, even though this virus was circulating. During February, more cases were being confirmed. The health agencies everywhere, Europe, CDC, U.S. CDC, Australian and British health authorities, Japan Ministry of Health, etc., they were all issuing the same advice to people. If you become sick, stay at home, Drink plenty of fluids, rest and take pain relievers as needed. Essentially, treat it like the flu. It was already becoming understood who were at risk, or at least who were the at-risk groups. It was the same as influenza. And the advice was that if symptoms worsened or you started having breathing problems, seek medical care. No calls to mask people, only to practice common respiratory etiquette of blocking your cough or your sneeze. There were no calls for physical distancing. And yes, physical distancing is different from social distancing. During February, gradually there became an understanding that we were experiencing a pandemic, but still no ordinary evidence of anything different other than a typical URI pandemic. This brings us to the panic start. March 2020 was the turning point from before to after panic. Why induce panic? Coop says we understood much about the virus and the disease, COVID-19. Notice the name is for coronavirus disease 19 starting in 2019, not 2020. So why now? Was there something different? He says the answer is no. It is well known that panic and anxiety changes the chemistry in the brain. In fact, rational thought diminishes rapidly in a panic state. Governments know this and use it to coerce populations to follow what they might normally consider to be questionable or bad policy. A recent example in the U.S. comes from the attacks on 9-11. The government used that horrible event to try to convince people that the U.S. was going to be under more or less constant attack from terrorists. Come on, you remember this, right? The Department of Homeland Security was established. Remember the warning color codes issued daily? They never fell below high and elevated. People were told that if they go to shopping centers, sporting events, etc., hordes of terrorists were ready to come and cause damage. Does this ring a bell? How about now? Just substitute coronavirus for terrorist, and you have almost the exact repetition of fear. And here are some lines that help drive it home. Remember at the beginning in March, the following mantra, we are at war with this virus, which he says, by the way, nonsense, you can't fight a war against a virus. We must unite to defeat this virus. Nonsense again. Humans adapt to it and vice versa. Everyone must sacrifice to defeat this virus, a foreboding of what was to come. We are in this together, trying to set the foundations for silencing dissenting opinion. So first of all, in order to implement the horrific policies that were about to be unleashed on society, the government had to create a state of panic. But unlike 9-11, when some news media questioned the premises, this time the main news media was in hook, line, and sinker, and they still continue in that mode. Why that is, he says, I'm not sure, and it's better left to others to decipher. But he asks again, where is the extraordinary evidence? Well, some people point to the death toll. The current per capita death rate for COVID-19, about 7 per 100,000 for the world, and about 36 per 100,000 in the U.S., is far below that for both the Asian and Hong Kong flus of the 1950s and 60s, both for the world and for the U.S. At that time, the world population was about half of today, but over a million people died. The U.S. population was about two-thirds of today, but over 100,000 died. Now, these pandemics didn't induce lockdowns, physical distancing, masks, etc. In other words, society and culture continued... We'll come back to this in just a few moments. Again, you'll find this article linked in the show notes at thebrienhideshow.com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you a, uh, an essay from the American Institute for Economic Research. Roger W. Coops is the author. And I think he's doing a marvelous job here of laying out the need to demand extraordinary evidence for some of the extraordinary measures that have been imposed on us by people in various positions of authority. One of the things he asks is, what do we know about deaths from this disease? Speaking of COVID-19. Throughout the world, about 85 to to 90% of all deaths occur with the elderly over 70 years of age, and not just any elderly, but those with problems like hypertension or obesity, kidney disease, heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, or weakened immune systems. Yet in this elderly population over 70, 70 to 90% who experience the disease still survive. Yes, the people most susceptible to serious disease and death actually survive more Then they die. These are numbers that one will also find with most influenza pandemics. Further, he says, throughout the world, about 50% of elderly deaths occur in long-term care facilities. Where is the extraordinary evidence? As a person's age goes down, the risk of severe disease decreases. But there's still a link to the same health risks that he posted above. But he says now you start adding in some new demographics into the severe disease and death picture. Two groups stood out in particular. First, low income groups in high density population areas like the Bronx in New York City, which leads the U.S. in per capita deaths of any country with a significant population. And second, health care workers. When one looks at Europe, major areas of severe disease are densely populated urban areas with indigent poor or refugees. Why should this be the case? Well, there are two major reasons, and they are lockdown policies and viral load. Now, viral load, a term everyone should begin to understand, and immune response are the keys for how any individual will deal with a viral respiratory infection. By the way, he says the same holds true for bacterial infections. Can we say bacterial load? Viral load is just a technical way to describe the amount of viruses working in the body. To understand about viral load, people need to understand how the virus works in the simplest of terms. Outside of the body, a virus is a protein, an organic molecule that does little and can break apart under various conditions. Influenza, coronavirus, and rhinovirus are small, very, very small in their natural state, each ranging from 10 to 120 nanometers, much smaller than a bacterial cell. They cannot be seen with an ordinary microscope, microscope rather, and they require an electron microscope. Now, certainly humans have absolutely no way of knowing if a virus is present or not until it's too late. You cannot see it, smell it, taste it, or have any other sensory perception to its presence. It can pass through most things, including masks, undetected. It can be dispersed easily with air handling systems and can land on any surface. In short, it can be be considered an environmental toxin at the nanometer scale. The stability of these viruses in the natural environment is usually limited. For instance, coronavirus is unstable with pH below 3 or above 10, and it breaks down quickly. UV radiation, heat, chemical oxidants like bleach also break it down quickly. But on some surfaces, it can survive For example, it has a half-life of nearly seven hours on smooth plastic. So what's the purpose of all the plastic sheets? So what does that mean? Well, let's say the plastic is contaminated by 100 million virus particles. Seven hours later, there will still be 50 million particles. Seven hours from that, there will be 25 million and so forth, assuming no new introduction of virus. And since the virus survives better on some surfaces as opposed to others, infection by contact can occur. Once inside the body, the virus is not an environmental toxin. Now it works as a parasite. It will find cells that it can penetrate. Upper respiratory ones target nasal throat and upper airways. And once into the cells, it uses that cell to manufacture more virus, which in turn are released back into the body. As the virus is produced, more cells are infected, more virus is produced. The viral load rises just like when a factory increases its production of its inventory of goods also goes up. Well, the human body becomes a virus production factory. Bacteria, however, are their own production factory. They don't need human cells to reproduce. That's why it's easier to develop antibiotics than antiviral drugs. But a virus works differently from bacteria in another way. Bacteria start to multiply immediately, doubling their numbers each time there is growth, usually within minutes. Viruses are more subtle. They seem to do nothing for a period of time, then suddenly they take off. This is probably due to the time it takes to invade the the cell and to commandeer the cell machinery for production. He says your body detects when a virus has started to go to work and generally begins to attack the virus using the immune system. Now, if your body has no specific antibodies for the virus, it will send its general array of immune system defenses after the virus. And since this coronavirus is a new version, this is what will occur. The goal is to control the viral load long enough for a healthy immune system to develop specific antibodies to combat the virus directly. At some point though, the antibodies take over or they start to take over. In a healthy person this timing can vary from a few days to several days, but usually enough to lessen the disease process and bring about a normal recovery. Now the viral load can be more difficult to control with the following circumstances. Number 1, the viral infection or initial viral load was high. If you get a good blast of virus to start, the factory could be well into production mode by the time your immune system responds. The more you get to start, the tougher to control. Number two, your immune system is weakened due to age or other disease processes. The ability to respond is now reduced so the viral production can outpace your immune response. Number three, you have pre-existing disease in susceptible parts of your body, like lung disease, etc. It becomes easier for the virus to penetrate, and continue the production. Unfortunately, it also means greater damage to an already damaged part of your body. And number four, you continue to get virus exposure while combating the viral load. This is the piling on of viruses when you're already down. Illegal in football, but not in viral disease. This is a critical point in care facilities or crowded areas. Now here he says, as a result, healthy people can experience anything from a minor uncomfortable illness to something a little more but generally they will recover and go on people who have more difficulties in controlling viral load will suffer more the europe cdc has reported that viral loads with coronavirus in severe cases are 50 to 60 times that in mild cases controlling viral load will help will, with help or rather will help determine the course of the disease so what role does a lockdown or other similar policies play in the death toll situation Roger Koop says the uh, epidemiologists understand you can't force viruses and virally infected people into confined spaces. When you combine people together in closed spaces with poor ventilation, poor sanitation, common use items, etc. If one gets sick, all are likely to get sick. But it goes beyond just getting sick. You're also setting the conditions that are ripe for increasing viral load. You now have many virus factories together producing away at an awesome rate. And while the production is occurring, the body is also releasing virus called shedding. This can occur from the mouth and nose, such as in coughing or sneezing, but also from feces. It can be easy to imagine how quickly viruses can build up and be spread under these conditions, especially in elderly care facilities. In places like retirement homes or long-term care facilities, institutions like prisons or recovery centers, hospital wards, refugee camps, inner-city tenement housing, and public housing developments. Such conditions exist and will cause the worst outcomes, and this is exactly what has been seen. A risk to the public health, or the general public rather, has never risen above a stated level of low to moderate from any health authority. It has always remained high in the at risk groups, and yet the lockdown policies are the worst for these high risk groups. Add to that the policies of actually placing infected individuals into facilities of high risk groups. Now you have a truly, truly have a health crisis. So what is the extraordinary evidence? He says, well, now the evidence seems to point to lockdown policies as exacerbating the disease process, not reducing it. And consider also the health issues that contribute to the risk of severe disease with this or any other URI. The U.S. CDC publishes annual reports on the health risks in the U.S. and the results are as follows. Number one, obesity. The U.S. has the highest child and adult obesity rate in the world. Number two, hypertension. The U.S. is also number one with hypertension and heart disease. Number three, the U.S. is at or near the top with diabetes, lung disease, cancer, liver, and kidney disease. Now, he sums it up by saying, look, where's this extraordinary evidence for the extraordinary measures taken? Since testing was started for COVID-19, Asia has shown very small numbers. Why should that be? Could it be possible that this disease passed through Asia during December 2019 and January 2020 before the panic? Did it fly under the radar because it can be so confused with influenza, the common cold, bronchitis, or other respiratory infections? Quite possibly that's the case, especially considering all of the activities in Asia. Most cases that have been reported have been clusters, and yes, about 50% of those clusters have been in care facilities. But he says, no matter how you analyze it, this is not apocalyptic. If there is no such extraordinary evidence, why are there such extraordinary claims and responses? These are questions for which we will be seeking answers for years to come.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.